0: to Mark 7, yeah, yeah, we're going to pass around some offering buckets, if you're a guest, if you just drop your connect card in there, that'd be wonderful, need to feel any pressure to give, that's for folks who consider Stonebridge their home church, if y'all are standing in the back, you're free to do that, if you want seats, we've got some around, feel free to make your way forward. A couple of announcements on April 10th, Uh, if you're in town, and that's the second Sunday of spring break, we're going to have a picnic after this service on the square, so it'll probably be about 12.45, we're trying to create some opportunities for people to connect with one another and build some community, so um, 12.45 on April 10th, just grab some food, go up to the square, it'll be a good time. Easter, Uh, for our Easter services, our children are in here with us, which... um, swells our numbers a good bit, so we're going to add a third service for Easter at 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't know if that's appealing to y'all who come at 11. We're going to have a 7, a 9, and an 11, and they're all, we're not doing sunrise, you can't see the sun come up through those little windows anyway, so it's just going to be a regular service. Um, We need probably 50 or 60 people to come at 7 to create some space and the 9 and the 11. So you don't have to decide today, but we will be, or I will be asking closer to the time just to make sure we actually have enough folks to make that service viable. Um, just so you know, we only have 200 chairs. That's it. That's all we've got. And it's pretty tight, and we put all of those out. We just want to make sure there's enough room for everybody who wants to come. So just be thinking about that. All right, Mark seventh. Last week we looked at this uh, exchange Jesus had with the religious leaders over ceremonial washing, and um, dietary restrictions, and all of this stuff, and kind of where we came down was there's this, uh, there was this oral law, the tradition of the elders, that was passed down from rabbi to rabbi, and it was binding. You had the written law, which is the Old Testament, and then this oral law that came around the side of it to help people know how to obey the written law. The oral law helps you obey the written law, and the original intention behind it was good and right, but over time, it got very cumbersome and burdensome, and so by Jesus' time, it, w- it led to hypocrisy, and that's what he says to these guys, this oral law that you guys are following, this tradition of the elders, it leads to hypocrisy. On the outside, people can appear righteous because of their behavior, but on the inside, their hearts are dead. The oral law following these rules doesn't do anything to take care of our hearts And that's really where the seat of evil is. It's our hearts. And then he pushes farther and begins to address the written law in terms of these dietary restrictions and says that doesn't do it either. Your stomach is not connected to your heart. You can eat what you want. That doesn't affect your sinful nature. All of these externals deal with sins with a lowercase s. None of them deal with sin with a capital S. That's what's rooted in our heart. And until our hearts change, we don't have any shot at really corralling these sins with a little less. And, and the promise of the new covenant is this in Ezekiel 36. We talked about this last week. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the promise there in Ezekiel is when the Messiah comes, he's going to deal with our problem. He's going to deal with our hearts, enable us to follow these rules that have, we've been unable to follow. And that even if we can follow them, don't address... Our true issue. So that was last week, and I think there's kind of a "so what" factor for a lot of us. How does that impact our life now? And I think hopefully you'll see that in this story. Picking up in verse 24, so Jesus left that place where he'd had this uh, discussion. He went to the to, excuse me. He went to the to the vicinity of Tyre. That's a Gentile area. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. If you remember a few weeks ago, and we looked at Mark 6. Jesus had sent the twelve out on a missionary journey. They came back, and Jesus has been trying to spend time with just them. He's done everything. It doesn't work. Crowds continue to follow him around. He's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on water. He's done all of this stuff, but he still hasn't been able to spend time alone with the disciples. And so he pulls out to a Gentile area, I think, hoping to create some space so he can spend time with his disciples says, he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So you've got a Gentile woman in kind of a, a Jewish prayer every morning. Thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not a slave. So she's got two strikes against her in terms of approaching Jesus in the first place. So she comes to Jesus begging for her daughter to be healed, and his response is mysterious, maybe offensive. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs. So that sounds like he's calling her a dog, which is not very nice. Um, You can look at this a couple of different ways. In the Old Testament, the Jews were seen as the children of God. I think the first time that's mentioned is Exodus 4.22, where God says, Israel is my firstborn. And so uh, Jesus, in this, this, uh, the parallel telling of this story in Matthew 15, Jesus says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He understood his mission as first to the Jews. Paul says the same thing in, Roman, in Romans 1.16. This is the gospel of salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jews, Then for the Gentiles, there was priority or privilege for the Jewish people. And so what he's saying is, I've got to take care of the children of God first. And then Gentiles, y'all have to wait. It's not your turn. You can look at it that way. You can also look at it just logistically. His priority at this point, I've got to spend time with these 12 guys. I pulled out. We're in this house. I don't want anybody to know where I am. You came barging in. Wait your turn. And her response, very telling, Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she's saying, Jesus is saying to her, you've got to wait. It's not your turn. And what she says is, no, I don't have to wait. If if, if children are eating anything that falls off the table, the dogs get to eat immediately. They don't have to wait till the kids are done. All I need is a little bit, and I can get it now without interrupting what you're doing. Jesus loves a response. He says, for such a reply you may go the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on a bed and the demon gone. Uh, Real quick, just I'm going to pull off on a tangent here. This woman's approach to Jesus, I think there's something there for us. There's two things that she combines. One is humility. Uh, She comes and falls at his feet. She recognizes he's got something that I need and I don't deserve it. So my only choice is to appeal to his mercy, to appeal to his grace, to appeal to his compassion. I'm going to throw myself at his feet and basically beg for him to take care of my daughter. There's a that humility component that I think many of us get. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I'm speaking in terms of prayer when we're approaching God. I think most of us get the humble portion of things. We recognize God is he has got what we need, and so we ask him for it. I think with humility, there's a, this thing in us. We want to say, God, your will be done, not mine. There's, there's, some, there's some good there. But then this other side of her, when Jesus comes at her about this whole thing about not, it's not your turn, and she replies so quickly, there's a characteristic that she has that I think sometimes we miss. This is Luke 11. Jesus is teaching about prayer. He says, suppose one of you has a friend. He goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't go up until you give them anything. I tell you, though, he will not get, get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, or your Bible might say persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. That word boldness or persistence, that's the only time it appears in the New Testament, and it's pretty tricky. It actually means shamelessness. Kind of the picture there is this audacity of this person to continue to knock at the door, even though the guy's already in bed. And Jesus is saying, that, that's, what, that's what we're looking for here. And that's what this woman exhibited. This, she was audacious in her asking. She didn't get her feelings hurt, and she wasn't willing to take no for an answer. Her daughter was suffering. She knew Jesus could help, and she wasn't going to leave. If she had to wait her turn, every day that she waited was another day that her daughter would be tormented. She wasn't arrogant, but she was bold. And there's a, there's a line there, and I think for many of us, we pull way back from that line. We don't want to be pushy with God, and I think we wind up leaving a lot of stuff on the table. I don't think Jesus responded to her kind of, well, okay, you got me, or move along now. I think he was genuinely um, happy, for lack of a better word. her. I think he smiled when she replied so quickly to him. I think that's what he was looking for from her. For many of us, again, we kind of, we back off pretty quickly. We're very deferential toward God, which is wonderful. We need to remember our place in this humility that we have, I think, but sometimes we forget he's also our father. He's not just our king. We talk about Jesus in the garden. Well, he said, God, this is what I want, but your will be done, not mine. And we kind of grab onto that to say, At the end of every prayer, God, your will be done, not mine. We've said this before, newsflash, it's always his will and not yours. That's, That's what he does. He doesn't do your will. He does his. It's good for us to recognize that. Jesus also prayed the same thing three times and was so intense, he was sweating blood. So you see both of the Abraham, I think it's Genesis 18 or 19, somewhere in there he's God's about to destroy Sodom, and Abraham says, what if there's 50 righteous people? Okay, I won't. 45, okay. 40, okay. 35, okay. 25. They barter down to 10. And then Abraham stops. You wonder if he'd gone lower, if God would have said okay. There's this uh, freedom, comfort that Abraham had with God that he was willing to go back and forth with him. You see, again, the same thing with Jesus in the garden. This freedom or this familiarity, this sense of security in their relationship that he could go to him. And I think sometimes for us, we pull back a little bit. We don't have that same sense of security in our relationship and we're so afraid we're going to overstep our bounds, we wind up not even getting close to the bounds. Imagine this woman, if she just said, okay, well, I guess it's not my turn. We do that sometimes. My encouragement to you, hold on to the humility thing that you've already got and try to work on this boldness, persistence, audacity that most of us don't naturally have. Most of you are not going to fall into the ditch of being too pushy with the Lord. We fall into this other one of not being clear enough with the fact that we want Him to act and how we want Him to act. So just try to grab onto both of those things moving forward. So anyway. So he, he does this couple of things for us outside of this whole idea of prayer that was a, that was a long tangent I'm sorry a couple of things back here so chapter seven one through twenty three Jesus gives a revelation externals don't matter following this tradition of the elders doesn't matter dietary laws none of those things matter what matters is the heart I'm here to deal with the heart revolutionary statement if you're one of the twelve you're reeling when he says this he's just taken a huge chunk of what you know to be true and said don't worry about it. This huge body of law that you're supposed to follow, he said, it's not very helpful. So you're reeling at that point and what he does in his kindness is he comes back and he demonstrates the truth that he just revealed. I told you externals don't matter. Now I'm going to show you that externals don't matter. So here comes a woman with two strikes against her. Again, a woman and a Gentile. Two strikes against her. I'm going to heal her daughter just because she asks. Because she approaches me with humility. She has this boldness. I'm going to heal her daughter. Again, for the disciples to see that, no, she doesn't fit. She's not under the umbrella of God's grace. She's outside, again, for two reasons, not just one. There's a show and a tell, or in this case, it's a tell and then a show. He told them something, and then he showed them what he just told them. He validated his message from verse 1 to 23 by what he did in verses 24 through 30. Romans 8.29, God says his desire for us, he's predestined us to be conformed into his image, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. God wants us to look as much like Jesus as possible before we die. And we see here what that look, there's a show and a tell component to how Jesus communicated this message of the kingdom or this gospel of the kingdom. He told people and he showed them, he showed them and he told them. And the same thing is true for us. If we're being called, to be conformed into his image, then we're going to have to do both of those things as well, show and tell. Now for some of us, when it comes to communicating the message, the word, I should say, the words of the gospel, this is who Jesus is, this is who you are, this is what Jesus did for you, this is what it means like to follow him, most of us would rather tell than show. We say my actions are going to speak louder than my words, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be compassionate, I'm going to be gracious, I'm going to be loving, and all of those things are wonderful but we never actually tell people why we're doing whatever it is that we're doing. When it comes to the work, when it comes to the work of the kingdom or the work of the gospel, demonstrating, most of us would rather tell than show. When I was uh, about 24, I worked with a youth group in Kentucky, and we took this little group of hillbilly kids to Argentina with about 400 other folks for a mission trip. It was kind of like a crusade almost. It was a two-week, deal. It was me and my wife, Misty, and these, I don't know, 10 or 11 kids from Kentucky. And the, the, I guess the um, heart behind the mission was to reach these particular cities in Argentina with the gospel. There'd been some revival in Argentina, and there was a guy who was Argentinian who now lived in California, and he was bringing people back to try to capitalize on what God was doing there and kind of organize it. So we went to this thing, they called it a City Reacher School and uh, I realized pretty quick it was not my cup of tea. I've had worse days. I have not had a worse 14-day stretch ever in terms of me feeling comfortable, period, physically, spiritually, relationally. So there's a group of 400 of us, and they split us up into buses, and I'm on a bus with 50 or 60 just freak shows, and we're going around to this place. I mean that with all respect. (laughs) We're... You know, uh, in the application, they had this thing. You had to rate yourself from conservative to charismatic, one to five. And at that point, I thought, hey, you know, I'll raise my hand and shut my eyes and stuff. I'll clap every now and again. I gave myself a four. After I went on that thing, I was negative eight on the, these guys, cuckoo. So I'm in this bus with these guys, and we're stuck together. The guys and the girls are separated, so I don't even have Misty there to kind of hold my hand and tell me everything's going to be okay, and one of the girls on our trip, her grandmother died, and I've never seen anyone volunteer to go home as fast as Missy did. I'll go. She can't go by herself. She bolted. So I'm there all by myself with these guys. We've, we've worked through that since then in terms of abandonment. So the, the thing, the strategy, is you have this fair. So you have this fair on the square, and it's on a Saturday, and you're supposed to invite the whole town, 60,000 people in the town. They're all supposed to come. And we set up these booths, and we have a booth for salvation, and a booth for jobs, and a booth for healing, and a booth for addiction, and all the different things that you could think somebody would want God to do in their life. And they have um, clowns, and mime, and drama, and all these things that are supposed to draw a crowd. And then we're all standing at these booths, and people are supposed to come to us, and we're supposed to pray for them, with the expectation being God's going to meet your prayer, He's going to answer your prayer right now. Whatever your deepest need is, God's going to answer it right now. And then I'm not going to have to convince you about any of the truth of the gospel because you're going to know because God has done this thing in your life. So that's the nightmare day for me. And leading up to that, we're supposed to go door to door, knock on doors, ask people what's your deepest felt need and then pray for God to meet that need presumably immediately, which is supposed to kind of whet their appetite to make them want to come back to this fair. I've blocked out most of what happened The second week, but I do remember the first house we went to. We knock on the door. Guy rolls up in a wheelchair, and I'm thinking, I already know what you're going to say, and it's not for peace in your heart. And I don't remember anything that happened once we walked into the house, other than I think I went white um, as a sheet, thinking about what are we, what are we supposed to do here? This guy's going to want to get out of a wheelchair. That's his deepest felt need. I would rather tell him about God's desire. To heal him, than actually pray for him, show him that God wants to do that. And you might fall in that same category as me. I would rather tell, I would rather show when I should tell, and I would rather tell when I should show. And it all has to do, I think, with confrontation. We don't want to put anyone on the spot by saying, here's the gospel message, here's who Jesus is, and he's looking for you to make a response. We don't want to do that. And so we say, well, I'll just continue to be kind and love them, and at some point, Maybe they'll ask me a question and I'll follow up. And when it comes to the showing part, we don't want to put God on the spot. Well, if I, if, if I say God do the, and he doesn't, then what happens? And then I have to become God's defense attorney and explain how come God did not do whatever it was that we were asking him to do. There's kind of that. And then, of course, our reputation is wrapped up in there as well, for sure. But on our best day, I think we can say we're, we're trying to avoid all of that tension and all of that dynamic. And so when we should say something, we don't. And when we should do something, we don't. And it leaves people wondering, this God who you say is active, I don't see. And you're doing these wonderful things for me, but I don't know why. We're not necessarily pointing people to Jesus all the time. Not to make anyone not, not heavy. I think that's just the reality for a lot of us. So there's this showing and telling component of what Jesus does here. And I think he's setting a model for us. I want both. You've got to tell. And you've got to show. The second thing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. He also crossed boundaries. I've said before. He crossed two significant boundaries. Male, female, Jew, Gentile. Matthew 28:19 says. To go into all the world. And to make disciples. And when we hear that. A lot of us think about these guys. Who lined up here. Well that's what they're doing. They're going to cross boundaries. From America to Guatemala. From White to Indian, from middle class to impoverished, or whatever those boundaries are, these guys are about to cross. True. That's one week a year. And that only, that's 10% of the people in the room. God is asking all of us to cross boundaries this week. I'm not saying you've got to find someone necessarily of a different culture this week, but to God is a going God. He always makes the first step, and He does that usually through His people. And if we're not aware of Him wanting us to cross boundaries, we wind up stepping over a lot of people we should be holding a hand out to. So I'm going to take 30 seconds. I want you just to pray with me about this, and then we'll move on. I'm just going to ask simply without any more background. God, if there's a if there's a boundary that we need to cross this week, if it is cultural, if it's economic, God, I think for many of us it's probably a relational boundary. There's been a wall put up, and you're asking us to step over that wall. pray that you would speak that to us now. Amen. Most likely, if the Lord was, um, if that was for you, either a name or a face kind of popped into your head. And you need to see that as your assignment for the week. That's God saying, reach out. Whatever that looks like for you, reach out to that person and don't wait. You need to do that, I would say, this week for sure. So the common denominator in both of those things, this idea of crossing boundaries and this showing and telling, communicating the message of the gospel, is the need our need for the Holy Spirit in order to do those things. Acts one eight says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there's an order there. First, wait. Then you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you can be my witnesses in all of these different areas. Jerusalem, Judea, those are Jews. Then Samaria, those guys are half-breeds. They're half-Jew, half-Gentile. That's crossing a boundary. And then to the ends of the earth, those are flat-out, pagans. This is, again, Jesus is speaking to Jews, and that's what they're hearing him say. This message that I've given you, you're going to be my witness. You're going to demonstrate and tell people who I am and what I've done in all of these different sectors of society, but you're not ready yet. You need to wait until you're empowered. Now, depending on where you come from, church-wise, this idea of the Holy Spirit, you might think like me, you know, this circus sideshow thing with people falling down and babbling in tongues or whatever your picture is of that. I don't want any part of that you say. That's just weird. It's freakish. It's not who I am. It's not who God made me to be. It might, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit might be mysterious to you or it might be something you're very comfortable with, again, depending on your church background. I'm going to try to cut through all of that real quick and say, if you're following Jesus, then you've already received the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says very clearly, when we receive this word of God, He gives us His Spirit. He marks us and gives us His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a person. You don't just get part of Him. A woman doesn't just get partially pregnant. She is or she isn't. And the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. You don't get a piece of Him. He's a person. He's all or nothing. And if you're following Jesus, then you've received Him. And if you're not, then you have it. It's that simple. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. When we talk about inviting Jesus into our heart. The Holy Spirit is the person who comes into our heart. Jesus is seated in heaven. You get that. You know that. So you've already received him. The issue for most of us, if I can kind of flip metaphors a little bit, is that we don't run on a full tank. Paul says in Ephesians 5.15, be filled with the Spirit. And the idea behind that is continually, the verb tense there is continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be running on full, and most of us run on half a tank, or even less, most of the time. And that's the issue for us. This idea of being filled is good. It reminds us that we receive the Holy Spirit from the Father. He pours His Spirit into us. And so you get people, you know, fill me with your spirit and holding your hands out, and that's fine, looking up to heaven. That's wonderful. We can all do that. The issue is, that can cause us to live as if we don't have enough of God to be obedient. I can't pray for that person to be healed because I don't have that gift. I can't talk to this person because I don't know God well enough or I don't feel it or I don't know the Bible well enough or whatever it is. And it can cause us to shrink back because we think we don't have enough of God. He hasn't filled me enough for me to be fruitful in my life. I can't cross that boundary. I can't communicate that message. I can't demonstrate that truth because he hasn't given me enough of himself. And it can cause us to sit on the couch. Either in guilt, because we're not doing these things that we should be doing, or in apathy. It's not for me. That must be for somebody else. There's another picture. This is in John. I'm going to close with this. John 7. This is Jesus talking. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the Scripture says that streams of living water, a better translation is rivers of living water, will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, excuse me, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. He has been now, and so that's the promise for us. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit in these rivers of living water. Y'all remember that old Bible school song? Anybody want to sing it? I've got a river of life flowing. You remember? Remember? Makes lame to walk and the blind to see. Bad hand motions. Gush, 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 gush. Very good theology. Rivers of life flowing out of us. If you're a Christian, that is true for you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, y'all, us. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, you and you and you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to look at this. Go read Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. And read about this river that flows from the temple. Now that's cosmic. But we're a part of that. This river that flows, it gets progressively deeper the farther away from the temple it gets, which is pretty cool. The farther it gets from its source, the deeper it gets. This river brings healing. There's trees that line up. It says the trees are fruit food, excuse me, for the nations, and their leaves are for healing. Everywhere this river flows, there's life with a capital L, and that river lives within you. If you're a Christian, I'm not asking you if you're super spiritual, I'm not asking you to be a spiritual showboat or any of that. I'm saying if you're following Jesus, then that river of life is flowing out of you. Some of us, our rivers look like this, though. They're polluted, and they get in the way. We've got all this stuff that gets in the way of this life. It's not that we don't have enough of God, it's that we got too much of our junk and it's getting in the way. That's sin. Some of us, our rivers look like this, they're dried up. There's a principle in the Bible, use it or lose it. If we're not walking in the Spirit, then slowly this river becomes a stream, becomes a creek, becomes a trickle. Whether that's out of disobedience or apathy or ignorance or fear, it doesn't matter. If we're not Walking in the Spirit, that's not mysterious. That's just obeying God. When we're not doing those things on Tuesday, this river just... And once we'll begin to obey, to walk in the Spirit again, that's not mysterious. Once we'll begin to do that, this trickle will become a creek, will become a stream, will become a river. Again, it's not God hasn't given us enough of Him. It's us. And this is what we're going for. This living water that's in our hearts. If I had to say, peg yourself, are you polluted, are you drying up, or are you living water? If I made you pick a category, what would you pick this morning? And what I want you to hear is if you're following Jesus, the issue is not that you have not received enough of the Holy Spirit. It's most likely that you haven't recognized. You've got these rivers of water, living water living within you. Jesus says in John 4.14 that his words are like eternal; they're springs that flow up to eternal life. Isaiah 58 says that we'll, this, that we'll be springs whose water never runs out. That's the picture for us. Sometimes we just clog up the springs. And we just need to get the rocks out so the river can flow again. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your desire for us, you've given us your spirit, which is an incredible gift, and honestly, we don't realize how incredible a gift this this the the god of the universe i'm thinking back to genesis 1 and 2 the spirit hovering over the earth when it's still formless and void that spirit lives within us this picture of ezekiel 47 of this river that's bringing life and healing and hope and sustenance to people that he resides within us and god my prayer for every man and woman in this room is that we would get that in our hearts and that we would live as temples of your Holy Spirit, recognizing that they are rivers of living water. And it's not just for us, it's it's for the people who we come into contact with every day who are literally dying of thirst. God, open our eyes to what you've already given to us, and show us how to walk forward in confidence. God, some of us, we're afraid to, we don't even think to pray, for our own family for healing. That's not for us. I'll give my kid Tylenol, but I won't pray that you would heal him. God, move us out of that mindset. Afraid to tell people about who you are. Afraid to cross a boundary. Whatever that is, God. That we would live as these temples with water rivers of water flowing from them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do this. We're going to have communion. Anna Kate's going to sing.